Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about cultural coding in fiction. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, on this podcast, we like to talk about games. And if you were on Twitter over the weekend, you may have seen that games were in the spotlight. (laughs) Uh, Um, This topic mostly comes out of, like, I want to call it drama, but it's not even, like, really drama. Uh, just like a weird moment in Twitter history where orcs became trending because people were complaining that orcs are thinly veiled black people and it's racist and it's not racist and orcs are, you know, yeah, cool I- and orcs are lame and just all of these opinions going out around orcs in uh, in the context of D&D. Yeah, and uh, I will I will be the first to say that like my exposure to this topic was mostly through people being like this is this is kind of nonsense, um, and I think there's a lot in here, not the least of which is orcs uh, don't necessarily have the most consistent coding across all of their iterations. Um, yeah, yeah, no, definitely. Like for instance, obviously orcs in uh, orcs in Tolkien kind of get like a really bad rap, like. They're basically just straight pure evil, fundamentally from the ground up, literally because they come from the ground or whatever. They're like birthed from these like mud pods. So, so, uh, so, compared so, to... so, so they're they're fun. They're they're like fallen elves, right? Like they're yeah. fundamentally elves that have been corrupted by like the industrial revolution, right? Like that's like the the underpinning of a lot of Tolkien, right? Is this like nature versus machinery kind of imagery? And so like there's not like a, a real like. Um, racial component to it because um, it's basically just like different types of Englishmen. I mean, you could, I think you could still criticize Tolkien on those fronts because, like, I'm pretty sure like the men that side with the uh, with with Sauron are all like the like the the, the Asians or something. I, I forget. Yeah, the exact and like stuff. if you read the descriptions of the orcs in the books, you know, like it talks about. Uh, like relating them to mongoloids and stuff like that, which like I forgive a lot of this stuff in just the like guys. It was like the 1940s. Uh, I don't think anybody was was really on the uh, yeah like, on the cutting edge. We were we were arguing a lot back then about like fucking eugenics and shit. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, and, yeah, and not in the ways that you think, right? Yeah, like, but like it is carried forward, right? Because Tolkien orcs inspired Warcraft orcs, inspired Warhammer orcs, orcs, inspired any number of different, you know, kind of like flavors on the orc. And it opens up this kind of like wider question about the propriety of, you know, using real world cultures and like real world peoples as bases for kind of these fantasy races, right? Or also science fiction races. You can kind of go sure. to either way because something that we see a lot is, oh, well, the Torin live in, you know, teepees and longhouses and they make these big carved totems and they wear headdresses. Hmm. Like, I wonder, yeah. I wonder what they're supposed to be, right? Um, I think that there's a kind of there's there's a couple of different places to come at you know like to come at this from, uh, but there's a, there's a sort of temptation I feel like to come at it from either side in a way that I find to be very like sort of pessimistic right. One of them is to sort of just be fucking just be racist right. How on earth could Torin have a society as advanced as the Blood Elves when the Blood Elves are like technologically advanced and the Torin are like you know 
Fight, like, you know, shitting in whatever. Just like be as racist as possible about this. Did you this, know right? the Blood like, Elves bought Thunder Bluff for $20 per To be honest piece? with you, listen, I gotta be honest. I, I've seen plenty of this before, right? Um, and it's pretty bad. But I think that the, there's the other version of this, which is just that like anything is like any version of this is racist, right? Where if you are, um, it's kind of the cultural appropriation argument, right? Where if you are basing the Torin on uh, sort of like native cultural traditions, that is a fundamentally like racist bad thing to do, which I think misses the point kind of in both ways, because really what cultural coding is, is it's a neutral term to describe something that happens more than to assign a moral value of whether that thing is good or is bad. Yeah, and, and and I think I think just to kind of lay this out at the start, that part of the thing that really wraps this up in this kind of good bad stuff is, um, in a lot of ways, the existence of the alignment system, right? Especially like in the D and D context, Warcraft Absolutely, is yeah. yeah is very good about kind of having like pulled away from like the orcs are always evil thing. You know, it was not their fault. The demons made them crazy or something right yeah. but like and then you have like thrall or whatever who are like legitimate heroes and you know uh in, yeah. in the horde the or the orcs are honorable stuff like that yeah for sure yeah and, and i actually think that a lot of this is wrapped up in kind of like um uh in in, in that alignment system thing because like one of, one of the takes one of the i guess i would call it spicy takes i saw was like you know um is that like you know orcs always being evil is kind of like plain racist and this is like a take that i i don't know if i've said it on the podcast before but i've definitely said it in real life which is racism in D is real and accurate right like yeah. ra- you know like racism makes sense in D, which is like a weird thing to say but like it's be- because like you know it's just ca- because you can guarantee that every drow you meet right is like well, maybe that's not a great example. Well, so, so they're like, evil. They're evil for the sake of being evil, right? Like they, they are yeah, evil yeah. and they know it, right? Like no, almost, almost no one in history in like the real world thinks they're evil, right? Like they think they're justified in their actions, or at the or at the most, you know, are doing something distasteful to to reach a a positive end. With the with the, you know the exception of several psychopaths, right? Like, um, uh, and I think that's kind of like the real driving force because if there's any cultural coding assigned to anything that has like you know a morally you know objectively morally evil valence then you know i think you you can get into trouble there i guess is the way i'd put it um and i mean even in like some of the like i guess i would call it more progressive versions of this um which is to say like the warcrafts of the world there are a lot of things in warcraft that you just fucking kill on site like you know like non-player rate like naga or whatever um which is an entire race of people that you're essentially led to believe are just straight up evil. There are no good Naga in, in like Warcraft. So I think that this happens basically everywhere and it kind of happens to sort of like fundamentally, you know, satisfy the, the kind of combat urge that powers these, these games. You kind of can't tell a story about like, you know, fighting to save your kingdom. If you are not fighting and killing certain, certain people, um, but, uh, but like, you're always going to end up in a position where like your racism is justified. Yeah. And like, I think part of this too is just like narratives, like sometimes like to just be clean, right? Like, um, you know, it's, it is much easier to tell a, you know, a noble bright story if there's a clear evil, right? Like, and, um, 
I think like there are ways around it, but like you, you can you can tell where like the edges of this get roughed up, right? Like in yeah. in in uh in Galarian, right? Like the goblins, some of them are nice now, but they used to always be bad. And like you also see like, like this is this is I think another part of it too is like cross cross uh property coding drift, if that makes sense, right? Like orcs in Galarian don't really have the same type of valence that. Tolkien orcs have that Warhammer orcs have that um, WoW orcs have, right? Like those are all very different, but there's a tendency to kind of like assign all those values to all of them, even though they're not quite the same. I think this happens most clearly with like the goblins, right? Because like the goblins and pies are kind of just like nutty things, right? Like they're just like kind of like crazy little um like bombass and like they pulled in a little bit of the tinkerer stuff, but that's I don't think really core to the Paizo Goblin Ridge, but that's something that's got like imported in because they're that in many other properties, right? Like in WoW, yeah. the goblins are coded almost as like uh like tinkerers and like um also like like greedy like banker types, which is a whole set of stereotypes that makes me kind of uncomfortable. There's usually something that like like verges on anti Semitism in a lot of these things, like the Frankie and Star Trek also kind of hit some of yeah, these Yeah, so notes. that was an example, because I haven't done much with Star Trek, but you mentioned when we were talking about this before the podcast, the Ferengi and Star Trek, and it, like, I've seen that image before. Like, I've seen Ferengi before in the same way that I've seen, like, Klingons, right? Um, but uh, I've never actually engaged with what they are as, like, a, as like a, uh, a kind of, like, species in the galaxy, in a way. But, yeah, like, that, I definitely think that that's, like, a little bit weird and can be kind of shitty. Um, like, the, the, the goblins in uh, fucking, what is it, uh, J.K. Rowling's, uh, she gets hit for anti-Semitism for those goblins all the time, I see, on, like, Twitter or whatever. You'll see people who point out that she made these you know, short, squat, hook-nosed, big-ear bankers who are misers that control your money and fucking hate you, but they control all of the banks or whatever, and it's just like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, and, like, there's also, like, it's hard to also disentangle that, too, right? Because, like, you know, some of that surely comes out of, like, just kind of historical caricature, right? And, like, that's got its own kind of cultural valence, and you don't, you know, you don't need to believe that thing about that to be true of Jewish people to have that be like a kind of like a cultural. Like, I don't think the Ferengi are intentionally anti-Semitic, but like they kind of, if you if you look at them and you list, like you 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 look at like the things that happen with them, it's like very easy to draw that that parallel. Um, yeah, and uh, there's also like you know none of these things are ever like really perfect matches. I think, and that's part of the point, right? Like. Use some of these things, like, we, like, I think all of these fantasy races, like, have basis in real human cultures because that just, like, makes them easier to understand in a while unless you're going for something truly alien. Um, but at that point, whenever you, like, you know, attach a negative valence to them, even if it's maybe not necessarily associated with the, like, you could potentially take negative things from, from like, one set of pool of things and then positive things from, like, a real-world cultural influence – but then, like, it seems like you're saying something about that, but, like, you can't always draw that one-to-one, -one, right? Like, the... Yeah. Uh, uh, and sometimes, even if you can, right, like, it doesn't really matter because, like, they're not... It's not necessarily, like, a negative thing. Um, so, like, an example of this might be, like, the Pandaren in World Warcraft. They're very obviously, like, coded Chinese. But it's not like they are coded Chinese because they have caricature accents 
and uh you know i don't know what are bad chinese stereotypes they like eat dogs and are good at math or you know what i mean like they are coded chinese because they you know they eat a lot of rice and they have the the clothing uh and of, the pandas like, of, and they're pandas, and their history vaguely resembles, you know, like the panda or the the Chinese Mongol conflicts in the Middle Ages, right? Like those those are the sorts of touchstones. And there's not like a negativity assigned there in the same way that like there's a negativity assigned to miserly goblins who control all of your money, right? Like that. I feel like that's uh, that's something that kind of allows you to get away with it more in a way. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, like I said, it, it's tough because, like, you know, how much of, like, dwarves being, like, Scottish-accented drunkards is, like, supposed to be, like, you know, dunking on the actual Scots? Yeah. And how much is it just, like, kind of, like, a thing, right? Like, Yeah, the funny thing is that, like, I very rarely you see, like, dwarves. Dwarves are celebrated, essentially, for their, like, alcoholism. They're never like denigrated for it you never see stories of like dwarves who like get too drunk and go home and beat their wives or whatever you just see i mean i'm being serious right no you're right you only ever see stories of dwarves who are just like having a fucking party at the bar and getting wasted with all their friends right like yeah like the the worst they do is they get into a dust up like you know that's I'm sure somebody's written that story, but, like... It, yeah, but, I, I'm sure, honestly, I'm sure somebody has but, written that story, too. But a part of that is that, like, that's just, like, generally not the genre, right? Like, can you imagine, like, a, like, <laughs> like a story in, like, WoW, where you, like, you, you have to... <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yep, uh, that would be weird. That would be really weird. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm just imagining, like, those, like, models, like, in Ironforge walking here. Oh, Jesus. Like, I can't, like... <laughs> can't believe i said that (laughs) but it's true but that's like you know like that's part of the that's part of the point i think a lot of the times when these things are sort of kind of like celebrate like even the goblins in galarian or like wow are kind of a good example of this right like they're they're kind of celebrated and like they're kooky and they're funny they're not really like denigrated in the same way that like you know uh like the pure evil races of evil sure like get denigrated um, like the Naga or like the, you know, I don't know. And like, or the, the, or the D&D orcs. And like orcs. the, the drow are like that, but like, there's still like, there's always still like the opportunity for like them to A be Drizzt good. Yeah, to, yeah. 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 To break the mold. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it, it's just weird. Cause like, like men's like I, I, for, uh, I haven't read them in a long time, but I used to be big into the, the R.A. Salvatore, uh, Drizzt books. Right. And, like Menzo Baranzan is like portrayed as like a fundamentally greedy and power hungry culture, um, mm-hmm. but like and like people are like backstabbing or whatever. But it's like it's still not like you know like. And then I killed surface elves because uh, you know I'm a psychopath. Like there are a couple characters like that, but like it's like this deep rooted hatred that like goes back across generations. And not that that makes it like. Not that makes it, like, you know, quote-unquote justified, but it's not like the surface elves were pausing to not kill the drow either, right? Like, mm-hmm. like I think, like, once you start writing it, you kind of have to write some of that out because otherwise it's usually not compelling. Some, you know, like, 
the, like you can write a story with an uncompelling villain and still have it be a compelling story because that's like not the focus point, right? Like this is like usually when you've got like a big dragon that gets defeated at the end or whatever, and you're not super yeah. interacting with it along the way. But when you're talking about like say the politics of Menzo Baranza, and you kind of have to give them some complexity or else it's just kind of like, and then they kicked the puppy. It's like, uh, what? You know, like, um, so it's, uh, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a, it's a tough thing. Sorry. I, I like lost any, any other. No, I, I, t- I totally get where you're coming from because I do like, you, you know, you see that like, and it's one of the things that humans typically get to escape in these sorts of situations, right? Like, so for instance, um, like, one of the things about Galarian is there are, like, good, bad, neutral, like, lawful neutral, lawful good societies that are, like, all human, right? Like, uh, Chalayax is a human society that's lawful evil, whereas, God, I don't remember any of the other fucking, like, names. Uh, the, uh, like, Rahadoom is one that's lawful neutral or something like that. Um, and But it's not like that reflects up to humans in the same way that, like... When you write, you know, uh, the dwarves of Ironforge as guys who like their beer and they like to, you know, uh, they're smiths and they're miners working under the earth or whatever. That, like, reflects on all dwarves across the Warcraft universe in a way. Um, And so... And that's kind of another thing that we end up sort of, like, pigeonholing in a way. Like, humans very rarely get pigeonholed. But, like, all of the other races do. Because you tend to just sort of have, like, okay, this is the one dwarf kingdom. Or, like, this is the one, you know, like, in Dragon Age, you have Orzammar, right? Like, this is the kingdom of dwarves, and they behave like dwarves, and this is what their dwarven cultures are, are like. Um, or, you know, uh, what's what's the name of the Golarian elf uh, nation? Uh, I forget what the name of the... Uh... The nation yeah, is. Yeah, I also But, like, they ha- it's, like, the one nation, and it, and it is the elven nation. All of the elves are there kind of a thing. It allows that kind of stereotyping to sort of, uh, to sort of, like, take place in an easier and, like, less complex sort of way. So, so a couple things here. Um, interest, like, so we, we, when, when we were doing, like, our little experiment talking about, like, our own potential world, uh, uh, Run. Uh, for the people at home who remember when we mm-hmm. talked about that a while ago, we we were trying to break some of this by like, but we we're still assigning them like one of like three disparate cultures. Um, and this reminds me of an article by the Angry GM about how like you kind of have to make your dwarves and your elves be dwarfy and elfy because otherwise there's no real point, right? Like if if they are just as flexible as humans, then they might as well be humans, and part of their identity is being tied to those kind of strict cultural strictures. And I think that he's not 100% right there or like, you know, I, I don't know how, how strongly I agree with that sentiment, but I think it's important, right? Like at least the existence of that culture, cause you can have, you can have a character that breaks it, but like you have to define the character in terms of defying the cultural norms that you're expecting out of him. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, no, I get that because so something that I think is, uh, uh, okay. So, What's a good way to explain this? Um, It's like you have a certain amount, like a a certain capacity, right, of what you can explain to sort of like a reader in a world-building sense, right? And you have to sort of budget your time and your energy. If you're going to sell a reader on a a radically different, you know, like like race with like a, a radically different, 
kind of societal structure, you'd have to spend a lot of time, in a way, explaining to those people what that what what that radically different race will look like. And you save a lot of time when you say the elves like the trees, they're haughty, they're elegant, and they hate dwarves, and the dwarves like to drink beer and they're you know, they mine under workers. the mountains. Yeah. Yeah, like that kind of thing, right? Like, because immediately you just save so much time by basically just saying most dwarves that you understand, if I just tell you the word fantasy dwarf and you immediately conjure an image in your head, go with that. That's so much faster than sitting down and being like, well, these people are sentient mushrooms and they communicate by ejecting spores off the top of their mushroom cap head and when other races smell those spores they smell the mushroom people's let you know what i mean like that takes time and that takes energy to explain and if you fill your world with a ton of races that take all this time and energy to explain that's just going to kind of be like an impossible to parse like world from a world building perspective does that make sense yeah or at least a very difficult one one that takes time to kind of like uh yeah. yeah, like, I actually think that, like, you could do it, like, maybe War- Warcraft is a good example of this, where you do it slowly over time, right, where you can kind of be introducing new variations of things, right, you can introduce, oh, these are the Volpera, and they travel around the desert in these caravans, and, you know, like, that they, they have these sorts of customs and ideas, and that's what makes them kind of like unique or different. And we've seen over the course of the 20 plus year history of Warcraft, right? That they, it's like, okay, first is orcs and humans. Then we're introducing, okay, these are what trolls are like. These are what forest and sand trolls are like. These are what, you know, the different orc clans are like. And you kind of, you can build this stuff slowly over time, I guess, in a way. Um, but it's much harder to sort of like hit the ground running by explaining the uh, uh like explaining the fundamental craziness of your uh of your races to people um, and I, and i think that it also extends backwards into the cultural stuff right like if you can be like you know imagine dwarves are like bearded short scottish men right like you can save some time there right like even if you know yeah. that that does you know have some negative implications there or whatever right like um, no, yeah, absolutely. Even you know, like even with just small things that are complete, you know, like you don't you don't even have to explain it. You, it's just it's just there to be seen, right? When all dwarves are talking in a in a Scottish accent, that kind of keys you into a mindset in a way. Or if all uh, you know, like elves are talking with like a posh English accent, that makes a difference compared to you know, whatever other sort sort of thing you're like, like game of Thrones does this a little bit where like the, um, uh, the Baratheons and the, uh, God, what is the, the land, the Baratheons and the Lannisters have like very Southern Londoner posh accents. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, Ned and the Starks all have that like North English accent. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That, that, this is actually like a, a a a thing that I have I have read about. Um, British accents are used a lot because they sound both both foreign and you can distinguish like classes on them at the same time to an American audience. Um, which I which you know is part of this, right? Like you can make yeah. you can make them sound exotic, but like indicate approximately what 
kind of you know what, what social strata they're in by by their yeah accent. no yeah exactly and so and so those sorts of things are and so i think this is why this stuff persists right like those sorts of things are useful to explaining to an audience this is how the world works right um and especially if you can do small things but like out, offer variations i think a dragon age is a pretty good example of this the elves are pretty elfy but just a little bit different because they like used to be slaves or whatever. The dwarves are pretty dwarfy, but they also have, you know, a couple of little pieces to their culture that you kind of like learn along the way. Um, so like you kind of have like 75% of understanding what the dwarves and elves and dragon age are like sort of built in. And then you just get explained the differences, if that makes sense. Like these are the specific things that make us just a little bit different, but not too much. Whereas you also have like the Canari who are essentially explained to you wholesale. And I would argue explained to you very poorly in the very first game. And only after the two subsequent sequels, do I have like a good like understanding of what Canari society looks like. Um, and and that's kind of like emblematic of what I mean when I say like you know audiences have a certain amount of bandwidth for this kind of just like raw exposition. Yeah, and like you can get like, and you can get most of that. Like like I that's I think the model generally right is you get elves, dwarves, and like the new one, and like maybe a couple other things right like the the bad elves or like the orcs or whatever. But uh, um, you know like Skyrim is like three types of elves, um dwarves which are elves orcs and uh black people <laughs> um, as a separate race and then yeah. you've got your lizard men and your cat people as uh as like your, your strange ones that get explained wholesale to you mm-hmm. um and even then like a lot of that stuff is like glossed over unless you go like deep in deep down the like elder scrolls lore rabbit hole um which yeah, i like, won't hear like i don't know the difference between thalmor and bosmer really i know one of them is called wood elf and the other one is called High Elf. Yeah. Uh, I, but, like, you know. This is actually an, an interesting kind of sub-phenomena, right? Like, is that um, a lot of the, like, there's, like, especially with elves, there's a couple different tropes that are associated with them. And a couple oh, different... yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you, you have dark elves, right? And like, Warhammer, you have drow and stuff like that. Yeah. And then you, have, you typically have high elves and wood elves, Oops. which sometimes get kind of, like, mushed together. Yeah. But, like, a lot of the time they're separate, right? You have the Night Elves in Warcraft, you have the the Blood Elves in... Or, I'm sorry, you have Night Elves and Blood Elves in Warcraft. You have Wood Elves and High Elves uh, in Warhammer, that kind of a thing. We, we all know that they're elves, but, like, one of them is, like, plinky tree hugger, you know, like, plinky arrow-shooting tree huggers. The other one is, like, casting arcane magic spell yeah, Sky Elf type things, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so this is this is a, a kind of a shower thought that I had just kind of on like that. So the humans always fall into this kind of like, you know, you know, strength and diversity type of thing, right? Like, you know, like the human's greatest strength is somehow like not being defined, right? Like uh, in in uh, in Tolkien, it was that they have like their their fate isn't written into the song of fate or something, right? Like they have they, they have freedom, Um Whereas like elves have like long lives or something, I'm not. I, I don't quite remember the stuff there. But like in D and D and Pathfinder, it's like you know you get like a free feat, right? Which indicates the diversity of human heritage. Um, and while I think definitely this is kind of in in the vein of like, well, you can kind of make them what you want because you're they're the only race that you can give that freedom to without making the other races a little bit more like you know like losing some of the meaning off of the other races. Um, this this kind of like hottish take that I, that I thought is that like. Humans represent kind of like the neoliberal ideal 
right, of, like, the free man free to make his own destiny, whereas, like, yeah. <laughs> the other races are, like, modeled after, like, the old the old Western and Eastern European kind of, like, set society roles. And, you know, they have their advantages, but their disadvantages are locked into being what they are, and they can't you really know, change. You know, I, so I, I kind of agree with that take, but I actually think it's a little bit simpler than that. I don't think it's, like, ideologically driven really at all. I think it's um, it's kind of the fantasy of, like... All right, what's a good way to explain this? Okay, so, like, you know how sometimes, like, chuds on the internet will, like, get up in arms about, like, gay romances in video games or whatever? And something that they'll say is, like, why did you have to make it political, right? Well, the thing is, is that, like, part of, and this is the sort of the technical term of, like, the word privilege that gets thrown around, like, check your privilege. Part of what privilege entails is an assumption of default status, right? If a man and a woman in a video game have a romance, that is apolitical. If a man and a man in a video game have a romance, that is political. And it's because, like, the default is that heterosexual relationship. And so even though these are both romantic relationships, right, one of them is kind of given a, a status of it has the privilege of not being political in, in a certain sort of way. And I think that's kind of how humans operate in a lot of these sort of fantasy universes, right? Um, where they just kind of get to be whatever. They can be, you know, like good, bad, evil. You know, they can work with any of the different races. You can have a human raised by elves who does elf stuff, a human raised by dwarves who does dwarf stuff, like all these other sorts of, all of the, all of the other sorts of things. And the idea is that they're kind of like apolitical, right? Like they are sort of ideologically undefined. And like you said, free um, to kind of like choose between any of these different, uh, any of these different pieces. I actually don't think that that kind of human lasts super long in like the more developed universes. Like, so for instance, in Warcraft, humans have essentially taken on the kind of western european um like ideal and approach in a way that you know humans in galarian are still a mismatch spread you know through everything right they can kind of be everywhere something that like warcraft does is they say okay like the the fantasy analog to native american are Torin, and to africa are the zandalari trolls right they don't include like uh, there's not a hidden society of African humans, right? Who are who are down there? Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, whereas, like in Galarian, you do have that essentially just multiculturalism all throughout human, all throughout humankind. Yeah. So, part of me wonders if that, like, if in World of Warcraft, humans were available on both sides, if like maybe that like would have drifted the kind of lore around that. Because I, I think you're right. In WoW, humans act more like kind of like their own race then as like you know humans typically do but i think that that might be warcraft specific in a in a, in I a think way warhammer also does a little bit of this uh, like okay, you obviously you have bretonians yeah. you have norskins you have the empire um but uh you know obviously kemri is the middle east lizardmen are the aztecs that kind of stuff um so uh the so i do think that it, it's something that sort of like blossoms a little bit like over over time or whatever um but like otherwise it can kind of be uh like spread like humans are just sort of spread throughout everything but one of the interesting things that that brings up and this is like the other piece of why we wanted to talk about coding is one of the things that they're adding to the shadowlands and this is the thing that i find really interesting one of the things that they're adding to the shadowlands instead of a new race race instead of a new class they are essentially going to each of the base like 
core Warcraft races, uh, so like not the new allied races that got introduced in Battle for Azeroth, the core uh, like humans, uh, dwarves, orcs, trolls, that kind of stuff. And they are giving those races each a bunch of new customization options, right? So one of the things that they did, and one of the things that they said that they were going to do very early on was basically say, listen, if you want to play a human that looks like you, you should be able to do that, right? So they are <laughs> introducing a bunch of new skin tones, facial features, hairstyles, so that if you are, you know, a young Japanese woman, you can make a facsimile of yourself in Warcraft. And if you are a middle-aged, you know, African-American man, you can make a facsimile of yourself without too much trouble, right? I'm, I'm sorry, but my immediate thought was, you know, <laughs> if you're a middle-aged white man, you can make yourself a young Japanese woman. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that would have been great. That would have been an amazing joke, and I should have done it. Um, and so the my like my sort of first uh my first expectation was that people were going to get really up in arms about this because they kind of do sometimes in the same way that like when they cast an indian actress in uh like a south asian indian actress in uh the witcher people got really mad that she wasn't like white um and you know like that sort of thing like oh why did you have to take the polish character and make them black to you know whatever this is what treads on the internet sort of say um that actually didn't really happen all that much which you know to my surprise good on good on you internet you guys didn't freak out about this like new edition of the show oh god man you're gonna you're gonna like i i think that there is some legitimacy to like people like people owning their own cultural artifacts, right? In the, in the same well, way... No, that... no, so definitely, I definitely get that. But so, and this is the kind of the part where it gets interesting. Essentially what people said is, you know what? It doesn't make a ton of sense, but we're just going to ignore it, right? Because the, uh, in, in a kind of competing sense, the good of allowing any player in the world, right, to, to represent themselves as an avatar in-game is just better and more important than, like, keeping the cultural identity of the humans in Warcraft medieval Western European, right? Right. And, and um, I also don't think they have that cultural identity super strong, right? Whereas exactly. I, yeah, think yeah, you, yeah. I think you can make the argument that the Witcher has a very strong Polish identity, Um that like not that I they they like I haven't watched the Witcher series so I can't really speak to how it was done but like mm -hmm. I think it's I think it is fine for like Polish people to want to have something that is there because they don't get a lot of that stuff right like yeah yeah I think there's a fundamental difference between you know you know American stuff and like you know yeah maybe a better example of this is when people got mad that they cast Michael B Jordan as Johnny Storm in the okay. Fantastic Four movie yeah yeah right it's like I, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's that kind of thing. But um, uh, and so and so people made that kind of like representation trade off where it was just sort of like, yes, it makes sense that people should be able to represent themselves when they when they play human sounds good. But one of the interesting things that they've done is they've also given those sort of specific cultural signifiers, not just to humans, but also to blood elves. Right. And that's raised a, a certain amount of a question, right? Because with humans, you get it, right? Like, it is easy for yeah. someone to make a facsimile of themselves as a human. But, like, for blood elves, okay, I get that they are close to human, but they're not. And they've always been described in these kind of, like, certain terms. And if you sort of take it, like, one step further, it's not like Torin are getting, co like, customization so that if you want to play a Torin with you know, uh, 
uh, like an Afro or something like that, right? Like that's just not something that's part of the Tauran identity because the Tauran are kind of inherently monstrous. And so they don't really have, they, because they don't map one-to-one onto human features, it's basically hard to make a version of yourself that's Tauran in the first place. So it's like not really there. And so the blood of thing is actually the contentious piece because people are a little bit like, well, wait, because like, that's not what blood elves have been. The whole point is that, you know, we've been told or whatever that like blood elves are, you know, lighter. They're, they're fairer skinned because of the arcane magic of the Sunwell or whatever else. And so, and so now all of a sudden that's a question. And then that question gets answered with, well, actually, if you look at some of the, like the worst fell corrupted blood elves, their skin turns black. So they have the, the ability to get that, deep melatonin in their skin and you're just like and now you're sitting here and you're just like are we really like arguing about the fucking melatonin levels of like like a fantasy race that completely doesn't exist or whatever but like it does ask a kind of real question like where does that line where you just say the representation is worth it end do you know what i mean yeah and at what point is it is it like tied to like the 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 kind of like lore behind it right like you know um the one that always pops out to me is like um, so with the uh, in, with the new kind of with Pathfinder two stuff, right? Like they have they have in their books like a, a broad variety of similar type of stuff with like say elves and dwarves, where you know you get like a much broader range of, range of skin tones than you uh-huh. typically see. Um, but we also know that there are like black elves that are drow, right? Which are like you know an unnatural shade of 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 black. And- <laughs> Well, and then, like, and it also, for instance, a point that I think is actually pretty valid is one of the things that happens when you say, okay, Torin, the, these big, you know, beefy minotaur guys are our analog in a way to Native American. Or, like, or like Zandalari trolls who have, like, these jutting tusks and, like, multicolored hair or whatever. Um, they are our analog to medieval african cultures you're also kind of saying that those things are inherently like unhuman right there's a there's an extra bit of humanness that you get to have if you are western if you are like a medieval western society compared to if you are a medieval african society well oh well now you're a troll if you want that representation you have to play a troll do you know what i mean yeah um this is actually why I think, like, that the, the Galarian kind of, like, humans are everywhere thing works a little better. Because, like, you get some of that flavor, but it's not like, you know, every Scotsman is a dwarf, right? Like, there yeah. are probably also humans with Scottish accents, you know, somewhere in Galarian, right? Like, um, so, like, you can get, like, make the fan, like, the fantasy races kind of, like, you know, cult- cultural touchstones of those things. Like, you know, modern cultural touchstones of those things. And then some other weird stuff on top of it, right? Like... You know, real Scotsmen don't live in mountains, right? Like, uh-huh. you know, um, so you can kind of like pull that out and like give them their own identity a little bit more. But like you like you said, right? Like if humans are kind of de facto just Westerners, then you you assign the salient quality to to the uh, to, to to the monstrous races in a weird way. Um, although that does kind of open up other stuff too, right? Like like less much less serious stuff, right? Like. Torrent are covered in fur, right? So, like, mm-hmm. theoretically, you could color them however you want. You can even, like, let them dye their, their fur, right? Like, imagine being, like, a bright pink torrent because you are. Uh... Yeah. Well, no, I mean, like, this is part of, like, the, the foundation of my character, right? Like, Baron is a Grim Totem Torrent, and he has black fur, and he experiences prejudice from other torrent because of that. Um, which is, like, 
you know, it's accurate to the Lord of Warcraft. But, like, if I were casting Baron in a movie, there is, like, a real pull in my head that's like, I bet Idris Elba would do a great job. Where it's like, well, what is the source of that sort of, like, one-to-one? Is Baron black? I guess he is, but like he's torrid. That's not, you know, like that kind yeah. of, uh, that, it, that's like a spiraling set of questions that's kind of like hard to resolve. Yeah. And, and, you know, not, not, not that I want to put the spotlight on you too much, but how, how much of this is like, like your fantasy racism, racism isn't real world racism by any stretch, I imagine, right? So, like, and, and how, how much of that is like, you know, is like that, like a thing in, in, in the, in, in the, the world like like i find that those topics tend to be a little bit sticky when you're trying to do fantasy racism versus real world racism as like a yeah. as like a story point like you can get very very easily wrapped up in the kind of like real world analogs in a way that that, that gets uh uh let's 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 call it uncharitably interpreted sometimes uh, uh <laughs> i mean feel free to, to tell me you don't want to talk about this but like did you you often find that to be be an issue no, I, I don't find it to be an issue at all. Well, so I think a part of this is that there's a flip side to it, right? There's like a positivity to it. Um, for instance, something that uh, uh, boy, I can't remember who tweeted this, but like I follow, I follow a ton of Warcraft people or whatever. And something that somebody talked about in the release of Battle for Azeroth was how much joy they had, like one of the artists, how much joy they had. Um, making Zandalar, right? Like being able to make the the golden city of Dazara lore or whatever. Because it sort of lets you get a little like there's a, a sort of like cultural reclamation to it. Because there's this in- inherent expectation in Warcraft that all of the races are fundamentally on pretty similar footing, right? You know, like there is nothing about Stormwind that makes it better than Dazara lore. They are both just cities in the world. Um and so there's this kind of urge or not urge, but there's this kind of ability to sort of say, like, this is what the glory of my ancestor, like, my ancestral people look like for people whose ancestral people were ma- massacred by white people. Like, I don't, I don't really know how else to say that, right? But, like, being able to play on that uh, and, and kind of, like, experience that, I feel like, is a pretty good, cool thing that I want, you know... I want every, like I feel like that's a that's a positive thing that everybody can kind of like engage in and uh and sort of indulge in. Yeah. No, that that makes that makes that makes sense. Um hmm. What else what else is is wrapped up in this? Um That's a good question. I feel like we actually like covered this one really really concisely. <laughs> So, 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 so there's, I, I think there's like maybe an interesting thing here is like, like just like kind of like running through my head, like the undead, right? Like, like mm-hmm. culturally coding skeletons, right? Like, can you and, and should you? Um, cause like, yeah, that is actually kind of interesting. The weird thing about the undead is that they are almost sort of a, em, like they're an emergent outcropping of the lore of the Warcraft universe itself that doesn't really map one-to-one onto anything. Sure. Um, and, like, I think that's true for most things, too. Right? In a lot of media, the undead are just kind of, like, uh, are, like, mindless, right? Like, in, and, like, the 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 intelligent undead are just versions of whatever they were um, otherwise. Yeah, you, like, the, the undead in WoW, like, they're real factions in, like, WoW and, and in, uh, in, in Warhammer. But in Warhammer, they're just kind of, like, well, there's, there's two versions, right? There's the... There's the Egyptians, like the ancient Egyptians, yeah, the and, tomb the, kings. 
and the uh and like the i guess transylvanians which i guess are vaguely eastern european yeah i guess that's also true for the forsaken in the sense that i feel like they take a lot of their sort of uh you know like dark gothic castles is sort of the yeah um the like the motif there but i also think that like at a certain point that stuff gets like a little too far removed from like its cultural roots in a way um, whereas I think something like Torin are pretty close to their cultural roots, the dark Gothic castle isn't somebody isn't something that people look at and they like instantly are be like, "Wow, Transylvanians are vampires, right? Don't go to Hungary, right? You know what I mean? Like that's just that that's something that uh, uh, I feel like occurs so so, so that might way. be true on like kind of like uh, with Hungarians, but I bet you, like I think if you say Transylvania to, to a lot of people. They think like vampires first, right? Rather than like you know the you know, actual set of fair, people. Yeah. Um, uh, but that's 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 it's kind of interesting because like I, I think what this is what this hits on is like that some of these cultural identifiers are like sometimes less like about the culture itself and more about just kind of like tropes, right? Like mm. in like like his, his historical sets. Like, and at what point do you separate like? historical realities from like things that influence the modern day right like um oh, what's what's in it what's an example i can think of off the top of my like you know like you know arthurian knights don't exist anymore but in like some form they did right like you know is is uh is playing a knight like really a marker of like western europeans or is it like more marker of western europeans like rooted in the medieval time well um, so interestingly i i think that it's almost sort of like a fantasy that people tell themselves so right like okay so something that uh, are you ready for this i'm gonna pull out the big guns something that uh foucault michel foucault said about history is that history is archaeological right where you are sort of re like you are discovering things about yourselves and you are telling yourself these stories about yourself right i think arthurian knights are more of a myth than people think that they are because like we have kind of told ourselves these stories about what knights look like but like if we all teleported back in time and saw an actual battle in you know like the battle of agincourt or something like that um in medieval times people would not recognize the uh, like people would not recognize the knights because they are different. They, they're sort of like being told sort of like the lie in a way, but in the, in like the, the cultural yeah. mythology from, from King Arthur. Yeah. That's, and that's true. Like I believe of the samurai, like the samurai were not oh, absolutely. nearly yeah, as yeah. honorable as, as, as they are made out to be. That was like mm-hmm. a, a reverse rom- romanticization. I think in the following period um, uh, of Japan, just, you know, like, you know the the stories we we tell about these kinds of things are not always uh you know congruent with reality um but you know there is there the, the point is, is that there is some some grain of truth there right like there were yeah. crusaders in the middle ages that like went to the middle east and fought with the people there over jerusalem um and like you know the the reality is much dirtier than the myth but you know, there there is there is like like a root of truth there, right? And like, at what point, at what point do modern Western Europe like like how how similar really are modern Western Europeans to medieval Western Europeans, and and how much, and how much of those cultural signifiers are are built off of the modern version? You know, like that. I think that's like a, a messy, mixed up question. 
Yeah, um, and I think it kind of gets to a piece of, like, okay, so, for instance, the Bretonians in Warhammer are pretty unambiguously good guys, right? They, they essentially work for the Lady of the Lake, uh, they're very Arthurian, um, they, you know, like, Lewin Leonker is a good king who does right by his people, etc., etc., um, but the Bretonians also launch crusades against the na- like the kingdoms of Araby. And in Araby, like, so for instance, if you play Total War Warhammer 2 right now, Araby is entirely controlled by Bretonians. And like, in a certain sort of sense, because the Bretonians are portrayed as good guys and the Ara- and like the kingdom of Araby just isn't portrayed at all. There's uh, if you're only getting your history from Warhammer, right? If you're only kind of like absorbing history from that cultural context, you absorb a, a history that sort of says that like the Crusades were justified, and like that's true. That 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 phenomenon sort of like happens, and I would say that's a bad thing. But also at the same time, like it's fun to play Total War Warhammer two and to not really like deal with the messy reality of, yeah. of all of it. And so like at what point are you willing to make sacrifices for truth and for sacrifices for fun? I mean yeah, this 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 is like this to to make it a little bit more modern, this goes back to the Hearts of Iron, right? Like Oh yeah, this goes back to, that's a great point. Yeah, like the Hearts of Iron thing that we were talking about last week. Everybody wants to play fucking Hitler. <laughs> And it's like, you know, one of the funny things, okay, so on Twitter, there's like a a very hardcore, I want to call them a mob, but that's kind of like uncharitable. There's like a very hardcore, like anti-Chinese bent, right? And one of the things that I noticed quite a lot in the release of Total War Three Kingdoms, which obviously tells a sort of fantastic history Right, where, you know, like, a, a, a history where Cao Cao can, you know, 1v1 an entire regiment of guys or whatever. Um, they were really mad about that. They were like, oh, you know, the creative assembly is lying because they want to, they want to feed Chinese people propaganda about their history or their past or whatever. But, like, also at the same time... And listen, I've played both modes. The romance mode is just more fucking fun than the than the historical yeah, well, mode. Like, the, I don't know the, what to tell you. The, the rom- romance of the Three Kingdoms is like the Arthurian legend equivalent, right? Like, you know, it's... Yeah, absolutely. And, like, you know, it's it's also a little bit weird. Like, the, the, specifically the Chinese politics, right? Like, there's, like, a clear point where, like, the Chinese reject their, their you know, imp- you know em- imperial, imperial, that's the word, roots right like in you know around like the middle of the 20th century um uh which i think even gives them an even cleaner cut from that history than than like western europe does right like there's like a kind of like a continuous transition into democracy from the medieval period in western europe whereas there's like a kind of very sharp kind of like cutoff um for china so i think that's got like much less many less legs than, than you could even like if I cared to level the charge against people, you know, fantasizing, you know, uh, uh, glorifying, you know, the the Arthurian legend, which I don't. But if I did, I think that'd be a stronger case than doing it with the romance of the Three Kingdoms, if if, if you follow me. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely get that, right? Like, 
I mean, like, this is something that, that I've thought about sometimes when I play Europa Universalis. Like, especially if you're playing Europa Universalis um, as, like, a major European power, you are really incentivized to do... Like, one of the things that's nice about Stellaris is, like, if I'm playing a run as, like, Fanatic Purifiers, Fanatic Purifiers being so xenophobic that they cannot engage in diplomacy and anytime they... And they can just, like, declare total war against anybody, right? You get bonuses for genociding alien races when you are a Fanatic Purifier. You are, like, actively incentivized to invade planets and purge all of their population by systematic extermination when you play as, like, Fanatic Purifiers. But you can also, like, offset that by playing, like, a super, super peaceful run of, uh, like, when you, if you're, if you're playing Fanatic Pacifists and all you want to do is, uh, the... You know, like, all you want to do is, like, trade with people and the galactic community stuff, and you want to get, like, diplomatic weight, all these other sorts of things. One of the things that happens in Europa Universalis, though, is that, like, when you play Spain, you get a certain, like, you get certain bonuses towards exploration, where you want to go and explore the new world and take over, like, and, and create colonies in the new world and war with native people about the colonies that you are settling in the new world. And that's like a little bit fucked up in a way because like you kind of, it's kind of impossible to play like a good guy Spain run in Europa Universalis in the same way that you could play an, like a fanatic pacifist run in Stellaris. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's interesting because it brings up kind of the question of like how much of a tacit endorsement is like, because, like, Europa Universalis kind of, like, embodies the spirit of that period, which is much less focused on, like, people as individuals and more as, like, the nation as kind of, like, uh, it's, it's it's you know, the spirit of the nation, right? It's, like, its own kind of, like, driving force, right? Like, where you're expected to kind of, like, move as, like, as an individual in that time period, you're expected to kind of move as, like, a piece of the apparatus of the state, right? And maybe this, this gets a little bit too heavy into it, but, like, it's... Like, because of, like, the kind of moral transformation the world has gone through at this point, like, it's, this is, um, I forget the term for it, but historians have a word for this, which is, like, is historical, like, um, chauvinism or something like that, which is basically, you know, applying our standards backwards, yeah. right? Because, like, in the frame of that time, right, like, colonization isn't bad because it's, like, it's, it's, like, you don't, like... Like the the moral framework of the time doesn't expect to, to assign people those kinds of that kind of dignity and those kinds of rights. And it's only as we move forward into the present that like we recognize those things as horrors because we, we shift on like what fundamentally what it means to be human, right, and what it means to be as a member of a of of a state. Um, and that's just kind of like I don't know. That's an interesting thing to think about because like like the, the the idea of like a quote unquote good guy doesn't even apply in a lot of ways, just because like. That's like you're you're using kind of the wrong moral frame um, for the time, um, but I think you bring up a, an, an interesting point. Like, at, at what point is is like engaging in that gameplay that kind of serves to explore that viewpoint tacitly endorsing it, which uh, I think is as much as you make of it, right? Like, I don't think like I think the amount that you are the amount that you are endorsing Hitler by trying to win Hearts of Iron three as Germany is. Uh, is is low right like if you're gonna sign some sort of valence that's it's got it's got to be like very very low but like i think the same kind of thing has to apply to like you know playing 
colonizers in Spain or like, you know, crusaders in, uh, in, uh, in, in crusader Kings, right? Like, um, yeah. And like, there's also a, just a pretty generic sanitization that goes on, right? Like even in hearts of iron, you, you could do lots of, lots of different things in hearts of iron, but there's no like research to research concentration camps or something like that, right? Like, so I I bet if that was a thing, right? Like, let's say that in order to, and this is something that happens in Stellaris, right? If you want to be a genocidal empire in Stellaris, you get a lot of military bonuses for it. Like, imagine a world where you got a lot of, you know, you, you had to invest, right, like, resources into setting up, like, extermination camps or whatever. I think people would be really turned off by that. And so, like, there is a, a part of it that's sort of like whitewashy or whatever, um, but the uh, but it's also like getting you away from and like out from under in a way. Um, ha, the, I, I I think that can be kind of important too because you're you're absolutely right, right? Like um, because it's like a mechanic. I think there's also like I feel like you know you run the risk of alienating people, but if it gives you a bonus, I could see it also being like. Paradox games are famous for this kind of, right? Like, you know, like, oh, I married my sister and murdered my son for the stats, right? Like, Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, like in Crusader Kings. Yeah, and, like, the, 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 I think the more direct comparison is you can literally borrow money from Jewish merchants and then ban them from your country, right? Which, you know, like, is, like, terrible when you think about it, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's an advantage in the game, right? Like, and there's no real oh, see, reason. I'm, oh, so that's what I'm talking about the opposite. I'm talking about, like, okay, you have a certain amount of, like, whatever, right? But instead of making all these tanks, why don't you invest that money in, like, concentration camps? I think people wouldn't make that choice, in a way. Um, and I and think the, that, yeah. like, the, w- it, when presented with it, I feel like a lot of people... I feel like people would just start playing the United States or Britain, you know what I mean? Like, there just wouldn't be... Uh, right, but like as if many you like, Nazi players, if you like, you know, increased morale by doing that, right? Which is like, yeah, the, like it, I, I see what you're saying. So if you made it a good thing, if people, like, oh my god, yeah, right, like, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, Incre- I do increase unity. Oh <laughs> yeah. boy, yeah, <laughs> right, but like it would like you know that might be the thing that's like a little too far for most people, but like. We see this happen, right, in the other Paradox games. Yeah, no, that's the thing, right? Like, I am sitting on a Fnatic Purifiers run. It was funny. I was sitting in Discord talking to my friends who were playing World of Warcraft when I was playing Stellaris. And I was like, oh, yeah, about to go to war. I'm going to take over these stupid Xenos planets, purge them all for the Unity. Because, okay, so when you're playing Fnatic Purifiers, you get Unity from purging pops of other races. And you satisfy your faction so you get, like, influence from it or whatever. So I've just been tremendously aggressive and dickish this whole run in this like whole Stellaris run and I'm sitting there like talking about this with with people and they're just like buddy what the fuck what are you fucking doing here but like you know that's like literally the mechanic that you would use if you wanted to simulate it in Hearts of Iron I'm glad they don't but like you know yeah I think that there's something about I think that there's something about like the inhumanity of it in a in a uh, in sort of like a science fiction sort of context like something that I also think is pretty powerful that we haven't really talked about is sort of um, so there's this idea that like one of the powerful things that fiction does right is it allows us to indulge sort of it allows us to play make-believe right in the same way that like a housewife might read 50 shades of gray because like the being able to sort of experiment with non-consent 
or, you know, taboo sexuality through the fantasy of that novel is maybe sort of the same thing that you might get if you are if you are someone who wants to play an an, an insanely aggressive uh, empire of carnivore plants, right? Or like if you want to play the Borg, or if you want to play the you know like the Empire from Star Wars, you can set all of that stuff up in Stellaris, um, and there's kind of that ability that you have to to sort of. Uh, experience things that are not real in the same way that if I go to a movie theater, right, I can experience the exhilaration of being in a gunfight by watching John wick, but I'm not in danger of getting shot. Yeah. Um, and I, I wonder, like, I feel like there has to be like, there's uh there's definitely like ways to play with that. Right. Like famously spec ops, the line. Oh yeah. I love uh, spec ops, the line. Um, but like, I wonder like how, how popular would it be to be a fanatic purifier? If in order to purge pops, you like, like literally like you clicked the knife button and it just showed you an animation of like people being stabbed and like it just showed you like you know they get stabbing them every time it's or like right? if you're the ambient sound in the game is just like, <laughs> like screams. The, the screams of people dying <laughs> yeah um you know yeah like like that kind of thing right like yeah. um but i think you know it's some at some level it's also kind of powerful right because like you know um to, to bring it back to 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 Heart, the hearts of iron framing right it's not like hitler stabbed six million jews to death right like mm-hmm. he he ordered it right which is kind of the equivalent of what you're doing in stellaris yeah um yeah and i also sort of think that like giving players the jury it's like one of the one of the defenses that i was making when i was doing this and playing with my wow friends was i just got off a fanatic pacifist run which was the run that you and i did in the multiplayer game i was playing the Soretti corp which was just a corporation um of fanatic pacifist traders and all that they all that they wanted to do was increase trade inside of the you know like inside of the bounds of their empire right and so in the i I don't know why this is the case but it just feels like it's the case because i can kind of waffle or i can kind of go between both it is just as nice and satisfying right to play a run as fanatic pacifists and win the game as it is you know, like, satisfying, but in, like, a darker way to win the game as, like, a fanatic purifier, right? If I'm playing the Warriors of Chaos in Total War Warhammer 2, right, like, that is a fun run of the game, but I can also play, you know, the Empire with Karl Franz and save the world from chaos if I wanted to. Uh, And that choice is, like, powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely, I, I agree. Um... I think we've wandered a little bit away from the core topic, but yeah, yeah definitely. Um, I think we've we've adequately explored it. Unless you had anything else you wanted to talk about with regards to that? No, I think we're good. I want to hear all about your time with Better Call Saul this week, season two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I actually, so, to be I, clear, you have only watched season two. You haven't started season three. Yeah, I okay. stopped, and actually, I, I'm kind of itching for it because I like finished it by Thursday. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. Um, it did not advance as far as I thought it would in terms of, well, you know, like you, you had me do my predictions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think most of them were wrong. Although I, I will point out that I did call the, the kind of, uh, the story the of motivation behind Chuck and Jimmy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. So Ch- Chuck, Chuck tells, um, Kim that, that, uh, Jimmy stole like $14,000 from the till. And like, I was like, there's like, 
I figure just kind of like from storytelling jokes, there had to be like some like hitch there. And uh, granted, on the lowest probability, I did. I sort of called what what uh what what actually happened, which is that like Jimmy learns to be a huckster from uh uh from from a from somebody who takes advantage of his dad. By the way, spoilers for Better Call Saul season two. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. But um, I. I liked I liked it, but it felt like it didn't feel as kind of like transformative as season one. I mean, it felt kind of more like a middle season, if that makes again it is, so that makes sense. Um, but I feel like it's much more part of a longer arc because, like, what um, Jimmy Lee like uh, enters and leaves uh, the big law firm, Davis and Maine. Maine, right? Yeah. Um, by the so. The one thing, the one gag that I love is the continual gag of like the the not real Dolly Dolly. Um, I love that they so um, initially they're like we don't have a Dolly to do this shot of the grandma in the rocking chair, and then they they show the commercial that he shot, and like if you're paying attention, you realize it's because they're sitting on like her stair elevator to to do the Dolly shot, mm-hmm. which they never explicitly call out. Which I just I know I thought that was fun. Um, you know, makes me feel really smart that I that I figured that out. Um, but uh, they draw uh, a lot of attention to that elevator. I also figured that out. It felt very yeah. clever because they draw attention to the elevator, right? right? Part of the bit in that, or part of the gag in that bit is, uh, it takes she's coming down the the uh, the stair elevator and it takes forever, and you're just sitting there like listening to like the bzzz of like the of the stair elevator. And so like, yeah, it's I think that that's mm, that's great. Yeah, um, and yeah, no, I, I just thought it was really well done. Um. I like, I like kind of like the whole framing. I like the, uh, um, like I'm continuously impressed by the uh, by the cinematography, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a shot of, um, so when when Kim asks Jimmy to not go into practice together, but to go into two separate practices that are like share an office. There's a shot through like the split business card that Jimmy had made up um, from like beneath where he's holding them apart. Like I thought that was just like great. Um, uh, yeah, I think that the, uh, I think the season was neat, like, the, I'm not a huge fan of this, like, electricity stuff, just like the, like, Chuck's disease, because, like, I don't know, it feel like, to me, it feels like Jimmy believes in it too much for, like, something that he clearly shouldn't believe in, right? Like, um... Like he he like he's the first one to like turn off everything, even though like he knows that it's not real, right? So like, I don't know. Oh, that's, that's interesting. I like that detail a lot. Like I've I've described okay. Jimmy as an addict before, and part of this is and part of that is like is this impulse, right? Jimmy is like a con man, sort of like subconsciously in a way like a real con man would understand and immediately figure out like no come on he's fucking with you you know like that's not he's it's not that he's fucking with you but that's not real right yeah um in the first season they establish medically through the doctor that charles's uh allergy to uh electricity isn't real um but like jimmy believes in it because he is kind of that like fundamentally good person in a way and like sort of unimpeded he defaults to doing the good thing which is you know 
like turning off his cell phone or like leaving his cell phone in the in the mailbox grounding himself etc um which is something that a lot of people have trouble with because they they don't believe in it and i like that there that it's there as this sort of way to showcase that like even as they are at odds like jimmy and chuck are at odds jimmy still like defers in a way to his brother do you know what i mean yeah and I, I so i think there's a difference between Jimmy respecting his brother's wishes, right? And like, like, so it doesn't bother me that he takes the stuff out of his pocket, right? And like, acts in generally accordance with his brother's wishes. It bothers me when like, when Chuck falls and hits his head, that Jimmy's first impulse is to turn off all the lights um, in the place. Cause like his brother's knocked out and like, he won't know the difference anyway, right? And it's not really a thing. And he knows that it's not really a thing because of mm-hmm. because of the aforementioned doctor scene, right? It's not like it's not like uh, the read I had on it, or I kind of I guess still have on it is not that he believes it, right? Like it's not that he believes um, he believes that it's real. Um, he believes that he, he clearly sees that it's not real. It's just that he does it because it, his brother asked him to, which is its its own kind of thing. And I think much more in line with with, with what with what you're describing. Um. But yeah, that's um, interesting. Yeah. So, uh, so, random question: Do we ever get more um, bits about things that happened post Breaking Bad, other than like the beginning of the season, like short vignettes? There is one, I think. Okay. That takes place after Breaking Bad. Um, okay. The, the vignettes at the beginning of the season, obviously, like are there and like important in a way, um, but. Uh, yeah, there is one scene that is like post or around Breaking Bad that that we get a little bit later. Okay, and do we know if season six is going to have uh, more of that, or if is it just gonna, is it just going to like do we know if it's going to end around when Breaking Bad starts? Uh, I th- I'm pretty sure it's going to end right around where Breaking Bad starts. Uh, the core like drama. Um, so have, so okay. Do you remember when Saul got introduced in Breaking Bad? Uh. Vague. It's when they took they, it. They like take took him out to the desert. Right. Yeah. 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 And oh, something yeah. He, that he says there is, "I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was all Ignacio's idea." That's Nacho. He's referring. Oh yeah. Right. So right. essentially, this has been this has been like from minute one. Right. Everyone has been freaking out about this detail because it's been five seasons. Um, and we still don't quite know what that line refers to. Um, there's more to it that like becomes clear. And like, as we continue to talk, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll make it, I guess I'll like make it up to you, uh, or whatever. But, um, yeah, that line is kind of the important line. It seems in the, in the ongoing trajectory of breaking bad. And so it's very like, <gasps> holy shit. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it makes a ton of sense, right? Like, I so a while ago you described the scene where like Mike, like Mike's horn gets like pressed with like a stick, and that happens like at the end of season two. That is the yeah, that is the the uh, climax of season two. Um, for Mike's story, at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, that oh, I oh man. So you got Hector. Oh, yeah. I love this. One of the biggest memes in the the better call saw like on the subreddit is making fun of hector's accent um because he is just like that super super strong like gritty accent he's like fifty thousand 
and the gun is yours. <laughs> like everybody loves to talk about Hector's accent because like Hector's Hector's just like the man. So yeah. yeah. I, I actually really like that like these characters, you know, like Hector is disabled in Breaking Bad. And so it's cool to get them to seem to be a little bit more of a character. It does also kind of like, you know, leads to the question, well, like, you know, I assume that like him being in the wheelchair maybe has something to do with something that happens during Saul because that, of course, makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had actually forgotten that you told me about the horn thing. I'm like, oh, is this how he becomes like wheelchair Hector is Mike shoots him? Um, but I guess I'll find out. Um you will find out. The first episode of season three is actually really great. It's one of those. It's one of those like the, the those detail montages I always talk about, where like yeah. a character just thinks through the problem in like a a very straightforward, pr- pragmatic, but like interesting way. Hmm. I hope I hope the answer isn't uh, what is it? Uh, Sky Mall <laughs> Sky Mall trackers Sky Mall GPS trackers. Oh yeah, this is like a weirdly long running plot point in Breaking Bad. Um, uh, but you know, uh, what else can I say about it? Uh, what did you think? I mean, so the very end of the season for Jimmy's plot line is Jimmy forges the paperwork so that Charles looks like an idiot and Mesa Verde goes to Kim. Yeah. Um, I thought it was clever when it happened. I thought that like, I don't know. I don't find it to be a particular, so this is part of the thing that like, bothers me is like i know that jimmy can't get disbarred right because like he's a practicing lawyer in breaking bad um and it's like so i feel like some of that tension like like because i don't see like the the plot right in front of me right like all we know right now is that charles has this piece of evidence against jimmy right yeah and but i know that it eventually gets resolved like and like if i had like a real thing that like you know like a real action in front of me that had to be resolved right like you know charles is about to hand over the tape and jimmy has to stop it right like that would would like i think have real tension because like i can't see that direct resolution but because the problem is still abstract and i know the resolution eventually gets made um it's not holding a lot of weight for me right now, if that makes oh, sense. Oh, okay. I remember thinking, like, what a huge deal. I was like, oh, my God. I, like, flipped the fuck out. Because, like, one of the things that is satisfying about watching Better Call Saul is kind of, like, watching Jimmy, wa- like, confront problems and be like, all right, I'm going to, you know, like, I'm going to, I need to do something crazy and outside of the box to sort of solve this. Um like with the Kettlemans or whatever, like tracking them down in the woods, figuring out where they are, or with the uh, uh, with the Mesa Verde thing, it, like when he's going up against Chuck to try and help Kim, um, right? Like that he used, that he did this, commi- that he committed fraud, right? right. Uh, in order to in order to sort of like accomplish that, and he almost covered his tracks, but Ch- but like Chuck sees it he all the way and that's the dynamic that i think is so great right like is is like chuck and jimmy kind of at each other's throats because they are both clearly insanely talented like one of the th- one of the nice things about season two i like a lot is how much charles makes howard his bitch like you can kind of tell that howard is essentially like an empty suit and that like really there are the 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 players right are Chuck, Jimmy, and Kim. And Howard right. is just kind of there. Um, yeah. But I also think, but I also like it because it makes Chuck a huge dick. 
uh, he is such a piece of shit in, in season two. Yeah, I no, he's like, so he's like he he very much feels like lawful neutral, lawful stupid oh, yeah. to me, Absolutely which is something lawful neutral, which is which is a thing I I kind of appreciate, um, right? Like, like that part of him doesn't bother me. It's the part that where he's like you're like you know like where he's like Jimmy, you're worthless. That really like, really bothers me. Um, oh, really? The part that bothers me most is the way that he treats people like Ernie. That's where I think. Uh, okay. That's where I think Charles is at his worst, and is the re- like the moment when in season ten Ernie Ernie talks to Kim, right? In, se- in season in episode-, I'm sorry, in episode ten, in episode ten. Uh, well, it, Ernie talks to the doctor and like lies for Jimmy. Yeah, that that okay. That's what it is. It's when he it's when Ernie lies for Jimmy. You get it because yeah. Chuck has been terrible to Ernie this whole time, and you don't even need to see that like Jimmy and Ernie were like friends in the mailroom, right? Like you get a couple of flashback scenes where Jimmy was in the mailroom with Kim and Ernie, and that's all you really need as context to understand that like Charles, like Chuck, legitimately lost there solely because he was a huge dick to fucking ernie and ernie didn't deserve that (laughs) like yeah no and like so like i don't know to me to me that's like a a minor more minor flaw right like this is like you know where chuck loses i think this is highlighted when uh you know when jimmy comes over for dinner with chuck's wife and like chuck tries to make a joke when they're going to bed like his wife just like doesn't get it for a second i know oh god that's so uh because like you know Jimmy's charming and Chuck is not. And I think that, like, like yes, that's bad, but that's, like, not what makes Chuck a bad... Like, that's not, like, Chuck's, like, fatal flaw in my eyes. Like, that's not the thing that, that's, like... Like, like that's a problem with Chuck. That's not the thing that makes Chuck bad. The thing that makes Chuck bad is that he doesn't think Jimmy is worth anything because, like, he didn't do things the quote-unquote right way. And, like, maybe that extends out to Ernie because Ernie's, like, a mailroom person and not, like, a, a real, you know, like, a like a, a real partner. But, like, I don't know, something something about him not recognizing the work that Jimmy put in just, like, feels more aggressively wrong to me, if that makes sense. Oh, I see. I get that. I definitely, I definitely get that and I agree with that. But I think that Chuck uh... – it's that little stuff that really, like, bothers me about Chuck. Or it's, it's not even little stuff, right? He does the same thing to Kim, right? Like, stealing – I mean, I – even calling it stealing Mesa Verde when it – you know, it wasn't stealing Mesa Verde. He had, like, kind of the right of way there. But, like, it was stealing Mesa Verde, right? Uh, and, see, um, see, I don't – I don't know. I, I feel like that's – I feel like that's a much, much, much uh, less solid, right? Because, like – you know, like, you know, that's a th- like they're competing for a client, right? Like, it's not like, and you know, to to be fair to Hamlin, Hamlin and, and McGill, right? Like he did like she brought them into them. And like, I, like there's something in my mind, like the thing that immediately went into See, my mind is like, like, this is your like in, inherent lawful neutralness, right? Because he, because I agree with you, right? Like he did, you know, like he has every right to in a, in a, in a certain sort of sense, but it also just like, it feels so wrong. Cause you watch Kim, right? Like you see Kim is in the doghouse and she's there and she's working so hard to try and figure out a way to get out of it. 
right? And the thing that she hits on is Mesa Verde. It is completely hers. And she brings it to Hamlin, Hamlin, McGill. And so, Lou, and, and she does the right thing by, you know, like telling Howard, by not going in the night like Jimmy, uh, uh, like Jimmy recommends, all this other kind of stuff. Um, and it's just like, I don't know. It just feels fucked up. It just feels fucked up when, when Chuck beats 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 her out i guess i don't know yeah but so i don't know i guess the thing that makes it less impactful for me is that he does it by being honest right like it's not like he made up something right like he points out the reasons why he would be a preferable lawyer and that makes sense to mesa verde um rather than yeah i I, I get that i also think a piece of it is honestly just sort of like his entitlement um because it's the same sort of thing that underlies that shit with ernie right the idea is that because ernie like works in the mailroom like there's that entitlement from chuck that like he can kind of treat ernie however he wants and like yeah sure maybe ernie should remember to ground himself or remember to get bacon this time or whatever you know like whatever these like small little things are but like they're just said with this like tone that makes me just want to throttle him you know what i mean i I get what you mean and that's like kind of like a you know there's a whole thing about like i'm an important partner at a law firm that means i get all these like ridiculous like privileges right like which is like a thing Mm -hmm. we also drive home with davis and maine um uh but i think so i think the thing that really like was probably bothering me more than it should have been is like the moment she tries to pull Mesa Verde. I'm like, they don't have like a non-compete clause in her contract. Like that's just like the first <laughs> thing that pops into my. Yeah, a bunch of lawyers forgot to put a non-compete clause. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, uh, especially especially with professionals like that, right? Because like yeah. that it, that's just a thing that like that like just like hammered into my brain. It's like, how is this a thing that happens? Right? Like, um, yeah, I also that, appreciate Davis and May. I like one of the things that I think. I think season two is great. And one of the things that I like about season two is that bit with Davis and Maine, because it kind of does the opposite of what I was complaining about with breaking bad a little bit, where I was sort of talking about how, like, because everything always sort of breaks against Walter in a certain sense, it absolves him of some of the dastardly moral stuff that's going on because like, you know, uh, he is legitimately like, he's legitimately fighting for his life. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what I love about the Davis and Maine bit with Saul is that he just can't make it work. That he had the shot and he is good enough to do the thing, but he just can't make it work. And that's part of his sort of like almost like tra- like the tragedy to his character. And it's not the same like can't make it work that that Walter had. Walter had the I can't make it work because of my because of my ego, which ultimately is a lot less sympathetic than what Jimmy had, which wasn't even really ego. It was just kind of like he's concerned with doing it the best. And he hates the idea that he wouldn't be able to do it the best. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there's a certain level of just like really empathetic or like sympathetic Jimmy recognizes what would work and what would be good. And he says, you know what? This thing will be effective and I'm going to do the effective thing and I'm going to beg for forgiveness. I'm not going to ask for permission. And it's not because, you know, it's not because he wants to like go around the partners. It's not because, you know, the partners are 
like cracking down on him. It's just because he wants to do it the most effective way possible. And I really feel for that, you know, in a way that I didn't feel for Walter when Walter just refused to take yes for an answer like we talked about. Yeah. And like the, um, I think, I think like kind of like the emblematic phrase here is, is, is essentially like, you know, Jimmy might've bent the solicitation rules really hard when he got on that bus. But, you know, as he put it, 30 more really victimized people got more representation in a, in a, in a legal matter because of that. And like, you know, that's kind of like the, like, that's where like, you know, the, 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 you know, neutral good meets the lawful neutral in a way. Yeah. And the thing is, is like, like that wasn't even that was like a little bit of friction, but it's like the commercial that really that really like tanks it, right? Because he recognizes that the Davis and Main commercial that the partners approved was just gar- garbage. It was god awful, and uh, and he's right that his commercial works, right? It w- was a lot better. Um, God, I, I also love that because that's like the DNA for his commercials, and you know, like in Breaking Bad, right? Like, yeah. the- I mean, on- and honestly, I love the film students. They are. God, they're so funny. I like, I there's just a really great. These are the great bit players that I was talking about, right? Just like bringing, <laughs> bringing them in to do to do everything, uh, is really is really awesome. Okay, do you have any predictions for season three? Um, I mean, I'm just gonna continue to predict that he gets the office until I get that one right. Uh, <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, what else? Um. I think that this uh, – so let me see. How do I, how am I going to predict that this tape thing ends? Um, That's a good end, question. It can't end with Jimmy being disbarred. Jimmy doesn't know about it right now. So there's a chance that it gets resolved with like without Jimmy, which, you know, I feel like there's like a – Jimmy causes big problems for Kim at some point by making her do something, like by making her stick her, her neck out for him in a way that's like unforgivable at some point. Um but I don't know if and when that happens. Like I, I see her maybe like having like a similar role to Jane um, in Breaking Bad, um, but I don't know if that will definitely happen and how that will happen. So I don't think it's here. I think the tape. What well, I think happens with the tape because they can't see Charles holding it over Jimmy's head because that's like that's like not Chuck. Um, no, he likes to use it. Yeah, right? Because, like, that, that's, like, the... It's, like, you know, like, Chuck won't... Chuck won't tell Jimmy that, like, quitting... Like, won't won't extort Jimmy, even though he's practically extorting Jimmy, right? Like, um... So... But he obviously can't just deliver it to the court. So my, my, my gut reaction is to say that this drives a wedge between Jimmy and Chuck further... Because Jimmy is forced to essentially say, I was saying this to placate my crazy older brother that needs to be committed because he's insane and thinks he's allergic to electricity. I think that has to happen at some point. Yeah. Um, and so that's going to be my that's, – that I'll, I'll put my money on that for, for now. That, that's my prediction okay. for how this resolves. What about, uh, what about Mike? What, what is um, your prediction for, for the Mike stuff? Um, so what's the prediction for the Mike stuff? Uh. M- like Mike starts moving into wet work, right? He starts to become the Mike that we know from Breaking Bad. Um, we like this. This is like 
kind of very clearly foreshadowed by like him working very hard to not kill someone and it ended up ending up with like the good Samaritan getting killed anyway. Right. Like I think this is like, I think that's very clearly the moment where he's like, well, I might, if someone's going to die, it might as well be one of these shitbag drug dealer types. Right. So this is honestly one of my favorite things about Mike, that it is that like, I remember thinking at the time, like, whoa, that is a little bit weird that Mike worked so hard not to kill someone. Um, and he thought it was so important not to kill someone. And, but, but then in breaking bad, he just like, he doesn't give a fuck. He is the person that is like jumping down Lydia's throat because he wants to put a bullet in her. Um, yeah, he is the one who knocks, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Uh, so I, I, I love that that is sort of like his arc, his sort of, uh, his sort of transformation. Um, and like, I think that's another important part of Mike in breaking bad is that he kills people that are bad people. Um, he doesn't really, he doesn't kill innocent people. And I think that we're going to start to see that, um, and, uh, I really don't know where this, um, kind of, uh, uh, this shooting thing goes. My get my guess has to be that like, it's maybe this is like, maybe it's Gus who, or somebody connected to Gus that like put the stick on the horn uh-huh. and that's how he like gets hooked up with Gus just because like, I know Gus shows up at some point yeah. and that would make sense. Cause we know that Gus has like an agreement with the cartel and that's how like everything is smooth between them. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess that's my my prediction for that. Hey, um, sounds good. Uh, I guess yeah. we'll check in next week to see how well you did. Uh, is there anything else that uh, that we we spent like our whole back half on Better Call Saul, which I'm not going to complain about, <laughs> um, like that you've been playing this week? So, uh, real quick, I I beat the Arena Champ in Gone Viral. Hey, fucking uh, nice! Congrats. Yeah, yeah, I managed to get like a really good set of mutations, like. Honestly, like Loki OP is um the like the the fan favorite like power and the like there's like a mutation that like increases your power when a fan event's happening. Oh, so you, you're just like constantly triggering those fan events? Yeah. And you just yeah. like you hit the button like also low key like like more frustrating than you think is like the ball like the ball pit fan event. It's just like so hard to see anything happening, which is a relatively new one. You hit mm-hmm. like the uh the fan event happens and you're just like fake beach balls all over and you can't see what's happening but it's it's fun um i don't know i th- I feel like i'll wait a while before i dip my toes back in not because i don't like the game but i just like i don't know i feel like i like once i beat it beat it i, I don't want to play it so much anymore but i'll probably yeah. play it again when like there's more updates and whatever and presumably yeah the there's longer. an update actually i think that's going out today uh but yeah it, it's one of the because they're constantly patching the game uh one of the nice things is that if you put it down for a month or two and then come back you have new stuff uh, yeah, to to come back to. Um, I play, played some Stellaris that you didn't show up for. Um, the only thing of note there is uh, we played with a friend that was uh, working on mobile data um, halfway across the world, and um, the connection held, which was impressive, but it, like slowed the game down to like what is like like it said fast, but it was like going at approximately normal speed. Oh, okay. And the game is fucking glacial at that pace, especially wow. early on. Um, like it is like, it's just like, not like it, it is almost unfun if you don't have like people to talk to you, but like, you know, you start to get into these little optimizations where it's like, it doesn't cost anything to swap scientists on the spaceships. So I'll send my, like, you know, I'll just like hot swap scientists across the ship to like minimize the amount of time they have to spend flying places and whatever. Um, uh, but that's fun. I was playing the Steve Ventures again. 
Um, I was surprised to see that you were playing uh, Steve Ventures. So um, earlier in the day, we had played one uh, just with with uh, just the, the 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 people we played with last time minus you, um, but we had pumped the difficulty up a little bit too high, and like X got steamrolled like pretty early on. <laughs> you know? That's funny. Uh, but it was it was it's it was a neat experience, and I was like, I, I really wanted to like kind of like nail down Steve, like just kind of like really like because the first time I played it, I didn't really have a great handle on the mechanics, so I wanted to give it like a good honest run. Um. Uh, and then what else? Uh, played some Warzone. Uh, what about you, buddy? What did, what did what did you do this week? Uh, I've been playing a lot of Hearthstone. I finally figured it out with a little help from my good friend Brian Kibler. Um, Quest Warrior is good again. Uh, my the big thing. Okay, so uh, Quest Warrior I've talked about before is my favorite deck. Um, it's where you're attacking with weapons with your hero a lot, and then you get this infinite value engine sort of going because it turns your hero power into something that just summons four threes for two mana, and you're refreshing it by like attacking. The old Quest Warrior deck was more about swing turns in the late game, so you could do this thing with an old card called Sulfuraz, where you could attack with one weapon a bunch of times in a turn and constantly refresh your hero power so you had these kind of like set up and pay off turns where you like equip sulfuraz and then wait and then the next turn you kill a bunch of things and make like five four fours and now all of a sudden you have lethal on board kind of a thing this version of quest warrior um is a little bit more tempo focused uh but it it behaves more like a mid-range deck so um you use the early game weapons to clear and one of the most powerful things that you can do now is um it's a card called, a card called Corsair Cash that you draw a weapon from your deck and you give it plus, plus one, plus one. And you only use three weapons in the deck, and they're all three mana, two, two weapons. So they get upgraded by Corsair Cash into three mana, three, three weapons. Um, and they do something when you attack with them, right? They either put a lackey in your hand or they draw you a card, that kind of a thing. Uh, and being able to use those weapons to kind of clear your opponent's early aggression and start laying down big value until you eventually finish the quest and you can then, instead of doing the five four threes in a turn, you're just two four threes every turn. Two four threes, two four threes, two four threes. Um, and it's really good, especially really good against Demon Hunter, which right now is at the very top of the metagame with a 54% win rate. Tempo Demon Hunter is just kind of like... Not steamrolling the meta anymore, but just killing lots of boys. Um, but they have a terrible win rate against this deck because those early weapons are so good at clearing their kind of like early aggressive minions that they want to get a lot of power in with. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, that's basically the cool stuff that I've been doing this week. I guess we're uh, I guess we're about out of time. Yeah. Um. Did you want to – so I know I know that you have another podcast to promote, right? Do I do wanna... have another podcast to promote. So for everyone who listens to this before Thursday, April 30th, the very first inaugural episode of uh, the Akupara Games podcast will be coming out that day. It is much shorter than this cast. It's only 30 minutes, but I'm going to be sitting down with the composer behind Relic Hunter Zero Remix, Cat. Arthur, who I regularly say is like the most talented person that we work with, like at the company. Um, she goes in depth on the like the way that she approaches the soundtrack and the music behind it and stuff. I was asking the toughest, I guess I want to say like music theory type questions that I possibly could. Um, and uh, and it was just a really great, uh, a really fun discussion. Um, it is not going to be on all of the 
podcast platforms because uh, we don't have that stuff set up yet, but it will be on YouTube on uh, the Akupar Games YouTube channel. So basically just follow us on Twitter, twitter.com slash Akupara Games, and you will, and you'll get the update. Excellent. I'm, uh, I'm, I'll have to tune in and listen. I, so, so. You said you asked like really tough questions. Were they, were they questions like you know like how do you make it go two 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 two? Yeah, essentially it was that. Well, it was a lot of like you know you t- like what is what is the the kind of harmonic you know, m- melody that you wrote for this phrase? It's like oh well, I actually mirrored the melody down a third or whatever, and so um, and so I because I wanted to get as in depth as I possibly could, but we also took a lot of time to be like down a third means this and that, or you know harmonization is this or this other thing for for folks who are not quite as up on the music theory as me, someone who took one music theory class to get a good grade in college. Excellent. Well, that sounds that sounds awesome. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Um, but I think that's everything we have time for. Um, you can if you want to ask us questions about anything. Or send us your orc hot takes. You can email us at gmail or some games at gmail.com or podcast at some Did I say that right? Some at gmail.com or podcast at some Follow us on all of the podcasting platforms because we do have that set up. Leave us a review. Um, you can support us on Patreon if you wish. Uh, I think that's everything I had, buddy. Did you have anything else you want to promote? I have nothing else that I am looking to promote. In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.